Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, where two best friends tell each other stories about history, politics, and true crime 700 plus miles apart. I'm Courtney. And I'm Ashley. Ashley, I think we have a little congratulations to one of our listeners this week. Our friend Lindsay just got a job she really wanted, so we're happy. Congratulations, Lindsay. We're so proud of you. Okay, so Ashley... What is our topic today? So our topic today is technically it's the case of Kelly Peters. We're going a little lighter on the true crime today. There's no murder. No one dies. I mean, it was getting real dark over here, man. I can't keep doing any murder. Especially when I know this story is like, I mean, it's just as Mm -hmm. crazy. It's legitimately crazy. Quick question. Can you hear my knitting knitting in this? Okay, good. I'm going to grandma it over here. Business as usual, then. So Kelly Peters was, presumably still is, a school volunteer and PTA mom. She had a 10-year-old at the time, a daughter who was in um, the Plaza Vista School in Irvine, California. What year is this? Uh, This was 2011, so six years ago. Um, she was the school's PTA president, and um, according to this article, which is legitimately, like, the only research I did for this, <laughs> sorry, not sorry, it's an LA Times article in six parts by Christopher Goffard, it's called Framed, and it's great, so it starts off, the first chapter, like, is called The Call, which it talks about uh, this 911 call received by the Irvine police because a quote-unquote concerned parent thinks that one of the parent volunteers might be under the influence. The caller says that they observed the car driving erratically mm-hmm. um, around 1.15 p.m. and they followed the car into like the school's parking lot and saw someone get out of the car and they say that the person's a volunteer at the school and that her name was Kelly. They send someone out to investigate was 22-year veteran of the force, like, has been doing this for a minute, knows what he's doing. They send him out to investigate and see, like, what's going on. Uh, wait, so the person who called said they think the erratic driver's name is Kelly? Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. no. Right. That's, that's... Right. So... <laughs> no. There's, like, they have the 911 call on the, in the article. Like, I can play it for you if you want. Yes, please. Yes, uh, hi. Uh, I was calling uh, because uh, my daughter's a student at Plaza Vista Elementary School, uh-huh. and uh, I'm concerned one of the, the parent volunteers there may be uh, under, under the influence or uh, using drugs. Uh, I, I was uh, I just had to go over to the school, and uh, I was uh, I saw a car driving very erratically, and uh, uh, I was it, it continued on into the into the parking lot of the school, and I was. I was going there, and I, I just had to look to see who it was, what was going on, and then uh, I, I, I saw them get out, and it, and it looked like they had some, uh, something away in their car, and uh, behind their, their, their seat, was, uh, some drugs, and I... What did they... All over the place. And then they went into the school, and I recognized that the woman is the parent volunteers for the after, after school program, and uh, I'm concerned that... Uh, so you specifically saw her place something behind her seat? Yeah, it looked like she she had some uh, like like like, uh, uh, like pills or something. Okay. What what is your name? My name is uh, Jay. Jay. Bj. Bj. And what's your last name? Uh, Chandra Sekar. How do you spell that? Okay, so. After that, it just gets into, like, his contact details. But did you hear that? How did he know she doesn't need medication? It was very specific. Like, he said drugs. Drugs behind the seat of the, like, behind the driver's seat, right? So That just seems like planting. I'm sorry. Who the fuck actually puts things behind their own driver's seat? If there's no one else in your car, you're putting that in the seat next to you. And if they're drugs, why would you? Yeah, no. If you, you'd have to. You put them under your seat. Like. If you're driving, you'd have to get out of the car, come around to the back seat just to put all that stuff in 
the back seat pocket, which is where he's saying that she, where he saw her put it, right? Like you don't. Yeah, and you haven't even been driving that long, and you know fucking know yeah, that you don't do that. So okay, so they send someone out to investigate, right? His name is Officer Charles Shaver. He's kind of the best. Wait, like if you had to compare him to a TV cop, like which TV cop would he be? He would be Bill. Like in my brain, he's Bill from Mindhunter. Is he Gibbs? Because if he's Gibbs. So, okay, wait, no, that's funny that you bring that up because he had been in the Navy and was an NCIS officer. (laughs) He is Gibbs! So, and he had been on the Arvine Police Force for 22 years. Oh, shit. He's experienced as fuck. And he can read people really well. Um, February 16th, 2011, it says, um, I'm just going to read from the article. Uh, The karate teacher had texted her, meaning Kelly, to say he was stuck in traffic and would she please watch the class till he arrived. She was in the multi-purpose room leading a cluster of tiny martial artists through their warm-up exercises when a school administrator came in to find her. A policeman was at the front desk asking for her by name. So she runs down the hall, like, freaking out, thinking it must be about her. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Wait. A bunch of tiny kids practicing. I'm sorry. It's, you know, they're just like, (laughs) like, you know, like, I always imagine little kids doing sports like me, like, with, like, the coordination of me when I'm hungover. (laughs) Which is not Not, no, I just, oh, I want to (laughs) die. So she runs down the hall to the office to meet this cop, freaking out because she thinks her husband is a traveling wine salesman at the time, and she thought maybe he'd been in an accident or something. So the article, like, shifts from talking about her to talking about Officer Shaver. So he was a sniper on the SWAT team. Yes. Never needed to pull a trigger, right? Like, they were cutting edge equipment-wise, but never needed to use it, which is always good. And at the time, he was 40 and had been in the Marines. And was an NCIS investigator. He legit is Leroy Jethro Gibbs. He really is. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to imagine him as Gibbs at this point. I'm going to send you a picture of him. Oh my god, please do. <laughs> just just wait until you get this picture. He looks like he's about to smack someone upside the back of the head in the picture. Oh, he, he does. <laughs> you know who he actually looks like? He has the stabler haircut, but he doesn't strike me as a stabler guy now. Kind of guy. He's Agent Coulson from Agents of Shield, aka all of the Marvel <laughs> Universe. That's what he looks like. He's like an Agent Coulson plus Le- Leroy Jessgro Gibbs. Yeah. He's got like Phil Coulson's face, Elliot Stabler's hair, Ed Gibbs' personality and like backstory, kind of a thing. Aka the best police officer ever. He talks to her about the callers claim that she'd been driving erratically around 115 and she says that's not possible because I was parked and in the school at that point and so he asks her do you have anything in the car you shouldn't have she says no can he search the car she says absolutely and the drugs were if you don't think you have drugs or anything like that you're gonna be like go ahead right it says that the drugs were exactly where the caller th- said they would be sticking out of the pouch oh fuck no seat. right so his cruiser was like blocking in her car. So he puts all of the stuff that he finds on the hood and she of his car and she's like, please put them somewhere else because anyone can see this stuff. So she's like, someone must have planted them. Sometimes I leave my car unlocked. Let's just for a hot second talk about what he found. Wait, can I first okay. wait, can I first Brace rant? Yourself? You never fucking leave your car unlocked. Yeah. I'm sorry. That is a horrible <laughs> idea. See, I laugh, but I've done that before. This is going to sound bad. The only place I do it is my actual house. And that's because we have four people living here with four cars. And so sometimes I block people in. And I think it's courteous. So that way, in case someone needs to move my car at 7 a.m. And I don't have to wake up. But honey, please. But she's in Irvine. This is a super safe community. Like, nope. it's all, like, they have a reputation for being super uniform and all the same. So does where I live. But so I go I go to Drug Mart and I lock my car. I don't trust any of those shady motherfuckers. Uh, yeah. I guarantee she locks her car now. Anyway, she says, someone must have planted them. Sometimes my car is unlocked. He finds in the car 17 grams of weed, a ceramic pipe, 11 Percocets, 29 Vicodins, 
and the little dosage baggies. So like the easy, easy. Dosage I'm sorry. Is she right? just trying to knock out an elephant right here? Cause that might do it. I think what they were going for is possession with intent ah. to kill. But we'll get into that in a minute because that brings us to who they are. So he puts the drugs in his, in his trunk, the cop does, and leads her back into the school. He gives her all of the sobriety mm-hmm. tests he can think of, checks her pupils, checks her pulse, makes her touch her nose, did the walk and turn, close your eyes, tilt your head up and count to 30. She passes everything, like flying colors, mm-hmm. clearly sober. Um, he could have arrested her right then. But it seems suspicious um, to him too, right? He believes her. When she's like, yeah, anyway. Um, he was seven hours into his shift at this point, mind you. So he had her on possession on school grounds of, of marijuana, which is misdemeanor, according to the article. Um, possession of Vicodin and Percocet without a prescription is a felony. So, like, yeah. he had her. If he hadn't believed her, he could have had her. She could have done some serious time for that. But instead, he asked some more questions. Which is why I love him. Because he's Leroy Jethro Gibbs and his gut is telling him something is wrong. Right. I love how this article like constantly goes back to him being a sharpshooter. (laughs) Because it says he was patient and alert to detail qualities ingrained into sharpshooter trained to lie atop a building for hours studying a window through a rifle scope. Like, yeah, we get it. He talks to her peers and the school administrators and they confirm that She'd gotten into the school office at 1240, so there's no way that she could have been driving at 1115. And the caller who said he saw her at 1115 didn't Wasn't it call 35 minutes later. So, like, that's weird. Wait, he said 1115, but I thought it was 1. Or, sorry, 115. 1. Okay. 15. So then he tries to call the number that the caller gave 911. It's not a real number. It's fake. So dun, like, dun, dun. so anyway he's like well can i search your apartment and she reluctantly agrees because she it even says like if someone can plant drugs in her car why wouldn't they do the same in her apartment but she lets him come in and look he doesn't find anything Hmm. like he was looking for not just like drugs or paraphernalia but for like the little baggies that were in the car and he finds nothing so now he's like this is why i was so excited that you think that you were like who put the where like that's not where you would put drugs because he says the same thing um i have to say i watch a lot of alaska state troopers and they have to do a lot of drug searches and it's like it's under the seat it's never in the back pocket like think about it if you're driving a car what's the most inconvenient place to put it in the driver's seat Mm -hmm. like pocket in the back because like you can't reach around and grab it like come on and so another interesting thing was that the pipe that he found yeah. was in the bag with the weed. And he it says, um, in Shaver's experience, no one leaves a bag of pot halfway out of a seat pouch as if begging for it to be discovered. People typically hid their drugs in the glove box or under the car seat. And for some reason, he didn't know why pot smokers don't typically keep their pipes in the stash bag itself. So all of that's weird. I'm going to have to look and figure that out. I could ask some people. What do you mean? Like, why wouldn't you keep it in the bag? Me, I'm just a neat person. I've never done that stuff. (laughs) And I'm just like, easy grab and go. But if you got to grab two things, I don't know. I don't know. I've never done any of that. So I don't know. Maybe there's some logic to it. But I wouldn't even know to hazard a guess. But listeners, if you know, (laughs) reach out and tell us. Because I'm curious now. Why don't you do that? Yeah. So the main thing that's in his brain is, if the drugs aren't hers, how do they get in the car? So he asks her, and she tells him, I have an enemy. That's really dramatic. It is, but she's not wrong. The next part of the article talks about, it's called The Power Couple. The story that Kelly Peters tells the police about this power couple is a weird one. Like, and she's clearly freaked out over it, but she thought she had thought it was over. Right. It's like, never over. It's so stupid and they wreck her life with it. Anyway, I'm just so, going to speak from personal experience. You think shit's over? It's not. It's not. <laughs> right. The power couple is a pair of lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. They are Kent and Jill Easter. 
He graduated from Stanford and UCLA Law School. She went to Berkeley. Pretty they smart cookies. Met, you think. Anyway, they met while working at a Palo Alto law firm, and she left the practice to be a stay-at-home mom. So she's bored as fuck. Pretty much. February 17th, 2010, right, was a Wednesday. There had been a tennis class on the playground behind the main administrative building, and Peters, so Kelly, was in charge of rounding up the kids and taking them back into the building so that their parents could pick them up, right? Can we please talk about um, how upper middle class that is to have tennis lessons at your your oh, school? Absolutely. At your private daycare? Yeah. I don't even know how so to play tennis. So she's supposed to leave them into the building at the back door and take them to their parents on the sidewalk in front of the school. Mm-hmm. Well, the Easter six-year-old kid had been left outside the back door accidentally for maybe five minutes. It's not that bad. My parents left no. me. My parents have left me places several times. I went to latchkey. Like I was a latchkey kid. This kid's fine. Anyway, I was a latchkey kid, but no, like this is like legitimately home alone level left me places. <laughs> <laughs> like several times. The worst That's time funny. I almost called like because they left me home. I almost called the like we were supposed to be going up to school, and I ca- I tried called the school and they didn't pick up. My mom's like, thank goodness. <laughs> So the kids at the back door for a little bit. The man who ran the tennis class found him and brought him to the desk. So Jill Easter, the mom, thought her son was upset and wanted to know what happened. So Kelly explained that he had been slow to line up. He tends to take his time, so it's not unusual. But she didn't notice he was missing when she brought the others up. Shit happens. Yeah. She wrote an account to the school officials like explaining what had happened because Jill was making such a big deal over it. And she said in this account that she apologized over and over. She'd hugged him and thought she had looked like he was okay with everything. But apparently the mom was not okay. And she was fixated on the tennis coach by Kelly's account and wondered whether the tennis coach had had touched her son. And like, wasn't it weird that the coach had brought him up to the front? And Kelly was like, no, that's not strange. A lot of the instructors bring the kids up. But it made her comfortable. And so she wanted to end the conversation. And so Jill Easter makes this comment as Kelly walks away that she wondered how Kelly could sleep at night the way that she treats people. And like, it made her cry. But her, she says, but the weird thing was she never changed her facial expression. It was always the same weird smile. So she's definitely like, she's not even like a helicopter mom. She's a bulldozer mom. Have you heard of those parents? Like a bulldozer parent? For listeners who don't know, and God bless you if you don't know what this is. Helicopter parents are parents who hover around their kids. You know, most of like they want them to do well and they try to help them out as much as possible. Bulldozer parents try to clear a path for their kid, being like, My kid's special. I need to take rid of all obstacles. I need to make sure they're like put up on this giant pedestal. My mom literally told one of my like one of the teachers, granted we knew him, that if he needed to, he could spank us in school. <laughs> oh, Let's talk more about this bitch. So Jill Easter, the next day, goes to the school and complains that her son had been, quote unquote, crying hysterically after being locked out of the school building for 19 minutes and she wants Kelly Peters gone. Wait, Um, so it went from five minutes to 19? To 19. Yeah. Oh my God, she's so fucking bored. Just do what a bunch of other stay-at-home moms do and have affairs. We'll get there. So she writes to the school and says, quote unquote, she told me that she blames my son because he is slow and he often gets left behind because it's hard to wait for him. For the record, my son is very intelligent, mature, and athletic and has successfully participated in many AIDS classes. He is receiving good grades and has earned many awards this year. He's not mentally or physically slow by any standard. She just said he was slow to line up. So then the director of that program wrote that she'd interviewed the coach and the Easters and had concluded that, quote unquote, nothing had happened to the boy and he had been left outside for closer to five to eight minutes. So then the question becomes, why is she so upset? And it seems to be that single word, slow. So she thought that Kelly had called her son intellectually slow, not pokey slow. She loved that kid. She knew him as this quiet, smart kid, daydreamer in the arts program. The arts program was like her baby. I just can't with these kinds of parents. Like, are you kidding me? I'm going to send you pictures of the parents, too. Do they look like white bread? 
I mean, the mom looks exactly like what I guarantee you're picturing her as Stepford right now. Wife? Hang on. Just wait. Oh, my God. It's coming. Okay. One of Kelly's friends thinks that maybe the boy's attachment to her had been some sort of factor in the, like, why she was so upset by this. Like, maybe he went home and kept saying, Miss Kelly, Miss Kelly, Miss Kelly. That's speculation. Actually, she doesn't look like what I expected her to look like. Really? Because as soon as I saw it, I was like, yep. <laughs> No, she, she seems like a pushy mom. To me, she looks like if Barbie was a real person and a lawyer and unhappy with her life. Like, there's some deep-seated frustration She's the, She looks like Is she's who's... the kind of person who goes through, who only buys the mini bottles of wine, but goes through, like, eight of them a day. Yeah, and, like, hides yeah. them. Who's next to her? Is that her, her son? Husband. He looks like a child. He Yeah, he... <laughs> that's not a great picture of him. There's some better ones. He looks on. like, but I'm sorry. He looks like a, a high school freshman, like really gawky <laughs> and like doesn't look like an adult. He's like if you water. saw him in the store, you'd be like, young sir, can you show me where the manager is? Because you don't look like you're able to handle this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the school principal like calls Jill Easter after the incident and she said that she just didn't want other children to be hurt, and she kept mentioning that both she and her husband are attorneys. So she learned, the principal had found out that Jill was approaching parents on campus to rail against Kelly. The school has a rule about civility, so, like, that's a problem. Phillips brought it up. Phillips is the principal. She brought it up and said, What the fuck are you doing? Jill Easter got, said that, what she was doing wasn't harassment and she's fully within her rights and she's going to continue until Kelly's gone. And she said that she might be making a sticker or like a sign for her car saying what Kelly had done. Loved her son probably more than his mom. Yeah, probably. So Kelly volunteered to leave. She's like, if you want me to leave to end this, I will. And the principal was like, no, you're not doing that. So then that's a, that's a brave ass principal. I'm right. not going to lie. Right. To stand up to a really pushy parent and be like, no, you're, you're without grounds here. Like, we investigated it. Yeah, and the thing like, is, like, you need to she, calm the fuck down. Jill Easter called the cops, and they looked into it, and they were like, there's no crime here. So then she wanted a restraining <laughs> order saying that Kelly had been harassing and stalking herself and her six-year-old son and that threatened to kill her, and the court threw it out. So then Kent Easter, the husband, the husband files a civil suit claiming his son had been the victim of like emotional distress and had been falsely imprisoned and had suffered extreme and severe mental anguish apparently and then they ended up dropping the suit the only things that came out of it were the school now need requires a headcount before kids are released from the after school program and the easters got a tuition refund but other than that they lost in 2011 she was um kelly was elected as president of the pta (laughs) that happened afterward yeah because she's a good person right if you're a good person garbage people gonna try to take you down right she so back to 2011 with the whole drugs thing kelly tells the police that she remembered jill easter in the original confrontation saying i will get you and then, i'm sorry is um, she like the wicked witch of the west here like i'll get you my pretty <laughs> that's what i was thinking too so then it's not lost on the police that like the drugs thing happened a year almost to the day from the thing with the kid someone needs to get the jill a hobby right but she still wasn't 100 percent sure that it was the easters she was like there's another person it could be it's this 43 year old dad who lives across the street from the school and he's like known for being real weird <laughs> like what but, real life question how weird do you have to be before all the parents are like yeah that's a weird one probably not as weird as everywhere else but cases pass off from our bestie, Officer Shaver, to, yeah, Detective Andrezzi. Um, Great name. If I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry. But he had been a highway patrolman and did narcotics for, like, worked narcotics for years. He didn't want to rule her out just because she was sympathetic, and so he looked into her. Like, he went back after that and was, like, looking into the call itself. So the caller gave a name and had spelled it out, and said they had a daughter at the school, but the school didn't have anyone by that last name. He noticed the stuttering. He noticed, like, the more information than most people would normally give in a situation like that. Isn't that always the case? If you give more information, 
And right. Like if you're honestly in that situation, you're more focused on the situation than the phone call. Yeah. More often than not. Um, and so he thought that maybe the caller had been following some sort of a script. He also noticed that halfway through the conversation, this like really bad attempt at an Indian accent w- just randomly started coming in <laughs> at the beginning. And you can kind of hear it, like, it's after he gives the name, because the name that he gave was Chandrasekhar, which he, he, the article says, as if suddenly deciding the name he'd given required it. So oh my God. some of the cops believe that it was her PTA rival trying to hide his voice. So they trace the call and they find out that it had been placed from like a wall-mounted phone at a hotel in Newport Beach. So they go to the hotel and they pull the surveillance footage and they look they're looking for the rival, which is like this Asian dude, kind of short. They don't see him. Mm-hmm. But they do see someone who goes to the business center like in a suit right before the call was placed. And so they show Okay. The surveillance footage to the principal, and the principal was like, "It looks like Kent Easter to the husband." And yeah. guess whose office is a hundred feet, or well, not a hundred feet, but within feet of the hotel. Like it's like a lazy, bullshitty thing to do, yeah. you uh, know. So they start following the Easters, and <laughs> they find out that their house a mile away from Kelly's apartment. And that between 2.37 a.m. and 4.21 a.m. on the day that the drugs turned up in Kelly's car, uh, the phones had exchanged, like, 15 text messages. And the iPhone... That's weird. The wife has an iPhone. The husband has a BlackBerry. The iPhone had been pinging off the cell phone tower nearest their house, but the BlackBerry was pinging off a different tower, which is near the apartment complex where Kelly's family lives and where her car was. God... Do you remember when you wanted a BlackBerry? Right? Remember when BlackBerry uh, Messenger was such... like, the coolest thing? And I was I'm was sorry. Like, this is like the most like m- like 2010, 2011 murder you can ever think of. Because they have an iPhone and a BlackBerry in right? it. So the police follow the Easters until March 4th, 2011. Um, which is when they served search warrants at his, the husband's office and at their house. I mean, they're coming after two attorneys so they have to be careful of how they're going to go about this they decide to pretend like they don't know what's going on but they're just following all their leads kind of a thing um i love that they had an edge in that he doesn't know how much they know so that's where they're gonna try to like that's how they're gonna get him they start asking like really vague questions and at first he seems like cool to talk um they ask him like hey are you aware of anything that's happened recently at this elementary school he explains how they'd had a problem last year his son had been locked out of the school and a volunteer had berated him for being slow and that they'd filed complaints but decided to move on and let bygones be bygones. So they bring up her name and he says, I've never met her. I don't even know what she looks like. So then they start Interesting. Yeah. So then they start asking more questions and the questions get a little bit more pointed. And he asks if they're recording this. And they say, Yeah, like, have had they heard of anything happening to her lately? Had she been in trouble? He says, No. Andrew Rosie's partner, Detective Brandon, says, Got any idea what the heck we're talking about? And he says, No. And so they tell him, we've been following you. And that he'd seen him coming out of the dry cleaners. The detective goes, you got to ask yourself as an educated man, why in the heck would I be following you around? Because that's all I do. I work criminal investigations. All I do is follow people around. I learn their habits. So you have to start asking yourself, why are we standing in front of you talking to you? And he's a definitely. Yeah, he's a lawyer. He should be fucking smarter than this right and so they tell him think back two and a half weeks ago why were you out of the house so late and so he's like oh now and then i run out for diapers but i'm probably i'm pretty sure i was home so like he looks nervous and when he gets nervous he starts to stutter and brandon who i also love Um, tells him i want you to use that big brain of yours mouth closed listen at some point during this conversation you're gonna have to make a big boy decision and that's gonna be on you and so he says my brother is always watching we're absolutely not the smartest guys in the shed okay but we can follow the dots from one to the next to the next 
hurts. And so um, they tell him about the phone records and the pings. And they say, if there's DNA on the drugs in Kelly Peters' car, we're going to find it. And so Brandon tells him, and this is all like directly out of the article because it's quotes. And they're so good that I can't not use them. (laughs) But Brandon says, I love when people are that dumb. Brandon says, I would hope and pray for your sake that there's a big light going off big bells going off knowing what I just told you is there anything you would like to add to your statement to me whether retracting or adding anything to your statement and he says I would like a lawyer and Brandon goes that's the big boy answer so then <laughs> Andreozzi finds in the center console of Kent Easter's car some diet pills in a little baggie that says easy Y dose pouch so it's the same bag the same type of bag that was found in Kelly Peters' car. Okay. And they find it in his car. That's just fucking stupid. Do you not clean out your car every once in a while? Come on! Right? Okay, so there's another picture of Jill that I'm gonna send you here. Hang on. This is her um, I think she's going into court, but I could be wrong. So anyway, um, Jill Easter. Oh wait, I got our answer. I got our answer. So I texted one of my friends. Um, she said they were in the same larger bag, but in smaller bags. So they were kept separate. What do you mean? Like, I guess, I like Like the the pipe itself the pipe and the weed oh yeah the pipe was in its own bag okay probably because you have like leftovers or you have to clean it out or something i don't know i don't Um, smoke pipes just think about it you don't keep a regular pipe with the the stash maybe you gotta keep it dry i don't know i don't know is there like residue maybe i don't know anyway jill easter is in the driveway with her three-year-old daughter while the cops are going through her house taking pictures like taking notes they find pretty much what they expected to find. Uh, turns out uh, Jill Easter had written a novel called Holding House under a pen name that had just come out. She Was it any good? Oh, just wait. So her pen name, mind you, is Ava Bjork, which I love. And so they find her a copy of herself. It's a self-published novel, mind you. And she has a copy in the house. And so they find it. It says that... Like its author, the female protagonist was a Berkeley-educated lawyer who found work at a Bay Area firm. She was, and we're quoting again, patient woman with formidable intelligence, the novel explained, alluring to men but unlucky in love. To cope with life's stresses, she mixed wine and Xanax. And when wrong, the heroine burned for revenge and applied her patient, formidable intelligence to the task of getting it. Yeah, I see why this is self-published, because it's just an autobiography. Did they make some police intern read that whole book? Oh, 100% they did. Those detectives aren't reading no, it. No, the detectives probably had to read it. <laughs> and I pity them for it. Ugh. So they're searching the house, they're searching his car, and they're searching her husband's law office. And that's a problem because they can't just go into his office and rifle through his files because of attorney-client privilege. There's a whole lot of confidential information that they have to be very careful about. They bring in a, an unpaid special master kind of guy, personal injury lawyer who agrees to be the third party who goes through and looks for what's relevant to the search warrant and leave the rest alone so that they protect his his client's confidentiality rights, which is actually fairly common if that's what they're, if they have to deal with searching a law office. I mean, it's not unheard of that they would do that. Yeah, because think of how many like date lines and stuff where they have to like search doctor's offices or lawyer's oh, offices because yeah. they killed yeah. their wives, you know. They're used to it. Yeah. Yep. So this guy's name is Paul Jensen. So he shows up to Irvine that morning and he counts like 15 or 20 cops who are going to be with him to do this search warrant. And he's like, that seems like overkill. But as he's going through the papers, he's actually happy that there are so many of them standing guard at the door because some of the law firm's employees are like confronting the cops, flipping out. And so it didn't calm down until one of the cops threatens to arrest one of them. (laughs) So neither of the Easters are arrested that day, but they do take the couple's smartphones. But then the phones were locked in an Orange County judge's chambers because his firm wanted the BlackBerry back because it had so like client information on it. That's a good law firm protecting that shit. Uh, well, if not, they're going to get slammed with negligence and other various failure to perform lawsuits. And so the defense attorneys that the Easters hired, they wanted the evidence on the phones kept from the police because of attorney-client and spousal privileges because it's complicated enough to bring to bring a case against two attorneys and even more so when they're married to each other. Very true. Yeah. You remember when you were like, why doesn't she just have an affair? 
So guess who she has an affair with? Are there multiple affairs? Please tell me the yes. Um, probably, but there's only one that they talk about. The morning that the search warrants are served, they're detectives sitting in an unmarked car waiting to approach the Easter house when an off-duty firefighter comes strolling up the block, sees them, and runs off with a phone to his ear. And then she comes out of the house in a negligee, sees the cops herself, and turns back inside. Oh my god. So it turns out this dude is married, right? Mm -hmm. He's an L.A. fire department engine driver, and he tells them he's in town to visit, and I quote, a beautiful Swedish girl, her name is Jill. Bjork! So they've been having an affair for like two and a half years. Damn. And she, they in 2011 were like swapping explicit photos and like sexting real gross she called this is all in the court record yes that she called him her like mr delicious and sex ninja <laughs> and all of this stuff i'm sorry could you just imagine can you just imagine they had to read that in court they had to read it in court yeah so anyway basically it comes down to they tell him what's going on and they kept saying she'll ruin you and he keeps saying i love her no she doesn't love you like this dude had a bed no so they ask him to wear a wire and three weeks later he. she's a honey trap right well mostly because he wants them to understand that he has nothing to hide and they think he's also like curious about what's going on so she he meets her at a park she brings her two youngest awkward and tells them that he's the poor and then tells them to go play i'm sorry did she just get all of this from like porns this just seems like a bunch of really bad porn intros He's just the park ranger. (laughs) So basically, they gave him like this loose suggestion of what to talk about. And so he tells her that the cops have been asking him questions and he wants to know what it's about. And she tells him she's in some sort of trouble, but like won't go any further. Smart on her part. Yeah. And so she's like, I really can't afford to have this type of investigation because my husband could lose his job. And he tells her he's going to tell them the truth and that it's not a crime to have a beautiful girlfriend and all this stuff. But he tells her he thinks they should keep their distance for a while because... He is smart as fuck. And he says, yeah. And he goes, I just hope that you are who I think you are. And I'm pretty sure that you are. Sorry. So, so basically they break up and she goes to his house and tells his wife, like brings pictures and emails and like, yeah. And then, so she writes this letter to the dance studio where his wife works in the third person as if it was like a friend of hers that was writing it and sends it to the place where his wife works. Oh my God. Yeah. She's crazy. So that's the affair. That's fun. This lady's just trying to burn everything down. She's like, she's like a personal inferno. Yeah. Like she's unhappy with her life and she's just going to take everyone down with her. Basically. So late March, like a month after they find this stuff Mm -hmm. in her car, Detective Andreozzi calls Kelly Peters and tells her they now have strong evidence that the drugs are planted. She's not going to be charged, but like keep quiet about it because anything she says could derail the investigation. She seems like a person who would understand that. Um, And so now and then. Sorry. Yeah. barking. So they find, remember they were like, we're going to test mm-hmm. this for DNA and see what comes back. And if it's your yeah. DNA, you're in trouble. So they find Jill's DNA on the pipe and the Vicodin's, but not on the Percocet and Kent's DNA on all Seems three. about right. The volunteer guy, mm-hmm. the attorney, pretty much he goes through about 20,000 emails oh my on God. the very alone. Just going through to find out like what falls under attorney client and what falls mm-hmm. under work product privilege. But he tells the judge like he's not qualified to screen for a spousal privilege. And it's October 2011 and he's still not even done. He's like, I have a practice to run. This is way too much work. I, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm out. But um, it ends up that the 15 texts that took place before dawn that day had already been erased before the phones were seized. So all of that stuff, all of that time, and the stuff that they had been waiting to get a hold of was erased before they ever got the phones. In I mean, who actually life. goes through? And like certain people, you just don't delete like your messages with them, you know? Yeah. That sketch. The article talks about a whole lot of anxiety and stuff stuff that Kelly and her family Aww. dealt with and like it makes me feel really bad for her but <laughs> we kind of don't have time to get yeah. into it sorry like I'm not trying to downplay what she went through she's basically way. being awful, ostracized but right what well and I wonder almost to an extent how much of that how much of the exclusion she felt mm-hmm. was on her like self-inflicted because everyone around her supported yeah. her and knew 
what was going on to some extent and like didn't believe it. I don't know. The next part talks about the detectives reading the self-published novel, Searching for Clues. Again, how much did they hate their life? Yeah, like one of the things they notice is for characters, a lot of them, the ones that are the best written are consumed by this like primal need for payback. Gosh. So like the one thing that I thought was really interesting was when they went and looked at the marketing mm-hmm. for the book, um, one of the things on her online page about it says, ever dream about a perfect crime? It's in this book. As you read, you'll be wondering why no one has thought of it before. It's shockingly simple, twisted, and 100% po- possible. Once you read about it, you'll be tempted to pull it off. So she believes that there's a perfect crime and that she could get away with it because the main character is a thinly veiled version of herself. It's not even thin. No. <laughs> No, there's a part about the prosecutor. The DA's office has a special division. It's called Special Prosecutions Unit that deals with like particularly sensitive cases. So like high profile stuff with doctors, cops, lawyers, politicians, that sort of thing. They must be busy. And I mean, probably. It's LA. I would think so. So the prosecutor who gets this case is named Christopher Duff. And he was really interested in how thoroughly the Irvine police had investigated a case where the victim suffered no physical harm, which I, yeah, that would grab my attention too. Yeah. There were like 20 detectives on the case against Kent and Jill Easter at one time or another, and the lead investigator had spent six months on it exclusively. Like, that was the only case. Damn. Yeah. But I mean, it seems like there's really malicious intent behind it. Yeah. The prosecutor meets Kelly Peters and... He looks at her and he's like, a trip to jail would have broken her, clearly. And any attorney would have known that. Yeah. But he also knows that if it goes to trial, a jury is going to find her sympathetic. Like, she's always, it says she was never far from tears when she talked about the Easters or what happened and the ways in which it had shaken her sense of security. Because that was why she picked Irvine when they moved to begin with, was because it seemed like such a secure, safe, like, in a word, boring neighborhood. And that was exactly what she was looking for. And then this happened and it completely, like, shattered that image of where she lived. Oh, honey. Yeah. I just want to give her a hug. Um, So he also realizes this is a case that, had been going on for more than a year, and the cops were frustrated with that fact. And he see he can see, like, the court battle for access to the cell phones, and he can see that it says, what seemed to fuel the Easter's sense of superiority, their status as lawyers, was now protecting them from the consequences of their crime, is what he thought. So he looks over the evidence, and see, he decides, you know what, I have enough evidence. I'm going to move forward with this and go to trial. Yeah, get it. Because he has their DNA. He has the motive and the opportunity. He has the smartphone pings. He's like, I've convicted murderers on less than this. So they were expecting, the Easters were expecting like a warning, a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Their lawyers had told them that the DA's office had said if charges were actually filed, they would get advance notice so that they could surrender, like self-surrender, have their bail arranged to be in and out of booking and be done. Um, but... The Irvine police were like, mm, no. love it, love it. <laughs> so, so in June 2012, they're arrested. The police were careful not to record the arrest warrants in public court computers so that the attorneys wouldn't be notified. I'm sorry, that's shitty as fuck, and I love it. It is okay. Actually, hang on. Those weren't. Those must have been pictures from their. Um, those weren't mugshots. I, these are the mugshots that they are. I'm sorry, those were not mugshots? They look like mugshots. No, they looked like it though, right? I mean, they were still in and out pretty quickly, like when they were arrested, but their mugshots were like everywhere mm-hmm. because even though no one had been killed, something about this, like just the power and the pettiness and how harmless their victim actually was, like the indignation that met the news of this case was crazy okay he looks older in this picture yeah he looks older yeah i mean he does not age well. she still looks like she's she up to shady good. shit he has the exact same eyebrows yeah she looks like she looks shady as fuck so basically kent gets fired and he's pretty sure he's never going to work as 
in a law firm again because none of them will risk the publicity. But, like, he might still have a career at the end of this. But they end up, the prosecutors end up winning felony indictments against them. Yeah. And they're not about to plead this down to misdemeanors. Yes. To they could still be lawyers. Yeah. They're like, we're not doing this that. This is where I love the criminal justice system. Yeah. If you're convicted of a felony, you're 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 disbarred. But if it's a misdemeanor, you might still, I mean, you'll have to go before the ethics board of the state bar, but you may still keep your license. And they're like, yeah, no, that's not happening. Sorry. Well, this is, this is where things get a little crazy. So Jill Easter takes the blame. It's not like she confessed. She makes a declaration in the court and it's quickly sealed. So it can't be used against her. And it was part of a defense motion to try this to try them separately. So if she admits guilt, there's a strong precedent for severing the trials so that they're not standing as co-defendants. They're each. Yeah, that's smart. Because naturally, if they sever them, because she admitted guilt, the husband would want to put her on the stand in his defense. But if they're on trial together, he can't do that. So if the trials are severed, then he can. They probably also want to do it for their kid, too, you know. That's the hard thing you have to remember. There's a kid that could lose both of his parents. Right. What ends up happening, um, the Superior Court judge listens to the defense argument and the prosecutor's opposing argument. Um, So what would happen if the judge decides to split the trial, Mm -hmm. like the state's case would be, that would suck. Because the defense would then push to have Jill tried first. There wouldn't be a jury trial. Jurors aren't going to hear her confession. There's not a whole lot of evidence against her. Mm -hmm. And she has a pretty good attorney, so there's a solid chance that she'd get off. She'd be acquitted. (sighs) And then she would take the stand at Kent's trial. She wouldn't face the threat of going to jail. And if she could get the jury in that trial to believe that she had done it, he goes free too. They're garbage people, I tell ya. For real is brilliant if it works Mm -hmm. but the judge has to first agree that her confession in that sealed declaration was believable and he doesn't believe her so it's denied they have to stand trial together yes love it good judge good judge yeah so 2013 in the fall um the prosecutor right Prosecutor gets a phone call, mm-hmm. and Jill Easter has told her attorney that he'll, she'll plead guilty to a felony count of false imprisonment by fraud or deceit. She would plead guilty in exchange for 120 days in county jail. She doesn't deserve that. Um, well, because it's a felony, she still loses her legal license. That's good. Um, but she wasn't even practicing. No, it spares her having to sit through a trial and she can still testify for her husband on whom she still depends financially. So they agree to that. This is the part where you're going to get mad. I'm glad that you know this. So so she serves less than half of her sentence. And she does 100 hours at a Costa Mesa soup kitchen. She was disbarred, however, so her law degree is like useless. So yeah. That's what happened. That's to her. not enough. I'm sorry. She tried to destroy someone's life. I mean, she didn't though. Well, she destroyed her sense of self, but which is awful. But I don't know. I don't know. I still think she should have had to finish her whole sentence. But California has a notorious overcrowding problem. Yeah. So I get it, but it still sucks. So Kent's trial. Um. Yeah. Kent's trial starts November 2013. His attorney had been named White Collar Lawyer of the Year two years before. Like, (laughs) I'm sorry. What? Right. Excuse me. So on the witness stand, they put Kelly Peters up there, and she describes being detained by the police. um, And she's, like, full-on shaking, crying, the whole thing. Can I give Um, her a hug? Right. I just want to hug this woman. I feel so bad for her. Like I said, it's over. Keep in mind, all of this is over five to eight minutes of some kid being locked out of school accidentally. Yeah. Yeah. So the next person on the stand is Officer Shaver. Um, the defense attorney. Right, the defense attorney is trying to minimize what Kelly went through. So he's like, she wasn't handcuffed, was she? No. 
put in the squad car. No, booked, no. So then the prosecutor um, throws himself on his knees in front of the jury box, like, and says, like, trying to demonstrate how she'd pled with Shaver not to arrest her. Aww. And he goes, she fell to her knees begging you, crying, please, 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 correct? And Shaver's like, yes. Ken Easter has one thing left, one card left to play because he's been arrested, he's lost his job, been indicted, he's on trial. Like, the only thing he could do at this point hmm. is to present himself as, and I'm quoting, an emasculated patsy. Let's not lie, it's probably true. I mean, maybe they play it off as she's this harpy who berates him, lies <laughs> to him, like, plays the guilt trip every turn, like, pushes him around, not physically, but, like, emotionally. Um, so... Like, his defense attorney literally says she wears the pants in the family. <laughs> yeah. I kind of love that. So that that's his defense. He, like, he full-on throws his wife under the bus. He's undone by this femme fatale who makes him into a cuckold and, like, forces him to do all of this stuff. Like, lies to get him to be part of this. All of this stuff. It may have worked if he didn't come off as such, like, a cold, detached, somewhat arrogant kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Because he tried, he explains that um, he had been super busy. He'd logged 200 billable hours a month for his law firm and, like, was trying to keep her happy, but she's never satisfied. And he knew that she'd been unfaithful to him for years, but, like, felt that it was his job to be a husband and stay married because no one in his family had ever been divorced. Like, he presented an email as evidence from March of 2010 and the subject line was need to get serious. And it was all about how to crush this volunteer. This was a month oh after God. it happened. And it's this whole list of things she wants done. She wants this background check. She wants her arrested. She wants a restraining order. She wants to sue the volunteer, the school, the school district, the school board, the public schools foundation. And she wants all of it done oh by tomorrow. Oh my goodness. And then in the, uh, the very last part, it's all caps. It's all bold. And it says... Why are we letting this no one abuse our son and then trash our family? A row of exclamation points. There are 60 Did you count them? exclamation points. No, but the article does. <laughs> it literally says there are 68 exclamation points oh for anyone God, who cares. There's so count. many. So, like, she's obsessing with this. And she tells Kent that he's letting her down, that he's failing, he's not pushing hard enough. And he had tried to be the reasonable one and he didn't know about this scheme. But he has to explain away why yeah. it was his phone that's pinging off the tower near Kelly's house, right? Because his wife's phone was pinging at their house a mile away. And so he tries to say that they swapped phones and that she had left her phone in the bedroom to charge and had taken his phone while he thought he was she was uh-huh. downstairs. Sure. Like taking sure. care of their daughter. Right, and that she'd actually slipped out to plant drugs. You know, just a casual slip-out planting drugs trip. I mean, I do it all the time. Right, right, as one does. So then he says that he was at work later that day when she called him to say she'd seen Kelly, like, doing drugs and driving like a crazy person, and she insists that he is the one to call the police. And so he finally agrees because he's afraid she's going to say that he's a failure. So, like, he does, and... Um, they play the phone Such call. Such a stupid fucking phone call. And he he actually says, it's incredibly uncomfortable to sit here and listen to something so ridiculous, and I feel stupid for having believed her and put my entire career and children in jeopardy. Well, at least you know you're dumb now. Right. And then they play the tape of her, like, flipping out on the firefighter. <laughs> yeah. And so he's like, yeah, I've heard that tone before. That's the tone I hear when I see the need to get serious email. I kind of feel bad for this guy, but then again, it's like it's this weird middle ground where right. you feel bad because he probably has been belittled and worn down after years, but he's so comfortable with it. Well, and the thing is, he's smart enough to know that if he can pull it off, he's going to get away with it. So I don't know how much of that to believe and how much of it is just him trying to get out of jail too or to get off light kind of a thing. I don't he know. looks like someone who would not survive in prison. Mm, I mean... He's an attorney, so they'd probably put him on the special needs yard or, like, an ad seg somewhere, so where he's not in general population, 
And if that's the case and it's not a super long sentence, he'd probably be okay. I don't know. I just feel like he'd but, be a bottom oh, bitch. Yeah. But like you said, he's comfortable with that. <laughs> anyway, so the prosecution gets up and most prosecutors have an angle that they are really good at coming at someone on the stand. If you listen to Serial, there's the, they, when they play the prosecutor, like you can tell she's got a persona. Well, the prosecutor in this case, his persona is, and I'm quoting again, biting sarcasm. So he'd be our friend. He wants the jurors to be able to read what he's thinking on his face from across the room. And that's not a bad plan. I mean, it works. So he's asking, the first thing he wants to know is why he stayed. Why can't, if that's the case, why is he still married to her? And why was he living with her up until a month and a half before the trial, considering all of the various ways she's betrayed him? And Kent's like, so this is the mother of my three children and my wife. Okay, right. Turning to the night of the drug planting, Duff asks why Jill Easter would leave him her iPhone, whose passcode he claims to to possess, considering how easily he may have seen the text messages with the latest lover. Because he's like, and he says... I mean, she has Fifty Shades of Grey on her cell phone, right? And he's like, I don't know what you mean. So, like, he's getting nervous. Yeah. And so he says it didn't occur to him to look at her text messages. He's like, I had no idea they were in there, so I wouldn't have known to look there or not. So the prosecutor's like, well, you know she'd already had one affair, and you were afraid that night that she was out having another one, and you had the one piece of evidence in your hand that could prove you right then and there. Yeah, he's being real dumb. And you didn't look. And you didn't look. And so he's like, <laughs> this is great. So then he mocks the story of the swap because he's like, if his wife had been sweep- sneaking around Peter's apartment complex with his Blackberry, wouldn't she be afraid that it would go off unexpectedly? And it says, in quotes, and all of a sudden, who lets the dogs out and starts <laughs> playing your ringtone? <laughs> that was not my ringtone. Oh, my God. I, I miss that it. song. It's such right? a dog song. So everyone pretty much was waiting for Jill Easter to come into play because she was his best chance at getting off because she's already pled guilty to her part in the crime and they're painting her as the villain. So if she goes on the witness stand and she's taking the blame for everything, like backs up his story and manages to come off as somewhat believable as a human, then it creates reasonable doubt. The prosecutor wants this because he wants to look for He's like, I want to question this woman. And instead, the defense rests, so they don't call her. Even though she wasn't there, like, the defense's closing argument talked a whole lot about Jill Easter's, like, alleged plans and all of the crazy, like, what-if scenarios that she probably came up with because, like, she's an imaginative woman. Obviously, if she wrote her own fiction novel about a perfect crime and all of this stuff, and the defense attorney tries to say that she depended financially on her husband, but she was really in love with the guy, that the firefighter. So they say that, like, if she's smart enough to write this novel about a fictional crime, mm-hmm. then she's smart enough to pull off something like this yeah. and make it so that her husband takes the fall. Definitely. Like, yeah. So, like, they try to say that... Um, She'd made sure that her husband's DNA would be on the planted drugs so that he would have to take the fall and that her calculating nature even led to her coming up with an alibi video with herself and her sick daughter and a timestamp meant to show she was at home at the time of the crime. So they say that if someone was going to go down for this, it had to be him and not her because he was expendable. He's not expendable. He's the one who's paying for your lifestyle, asshole. Right, right. But this is what his defense attorney is trying to say, is that she did it, and it was her point of view that he was expendable. So that was why she figured, okay, well, we're going to, I'm going to frame this girl, but I'm going to make it look like Kent did it, so I could get away with it. That's just so fucking dumb. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes sense, but it's so fucking dumb. So the charge that all of this was involving was one count of false imprisonment by fraud or deceit, and it was a hung jury. 11 people voted to convict and one person felt sorry for him and they couldn't come to a verdict. So it was a mistrial and they did it all again 10 months later. Uh. The second trial, right? They call 
Jill Easter because she'd finished her two months in jail. They call her, but she points to her, like, when she gets up on the stand, she points to her ears and claims she can't hear anything. And she didn't want a sign language interpreter. She wanted a screen on which to read lawyers' questions in real time. So the prosecution thinks it's some sort of ruse to throw off cross-exam because then it's harder to trap her because she has extra time to process questions. And the judge says that she has to make do with an interpreter like anybody else. (laughs) The judge isn't buying her shit. I'm sorry. The defense takes a minute, talk about it, and they end up sending her home. So again, she doesn't testify. Because they know it's bullshit. Right. Right. The hardest part for the prosecution was trying to explain why they wanted to ruin Kelly in the first place. Because it was so, like, irrationally small. Yeah. That they, like, that was the most unbelievable part. It says, at the first trial, Duff emphasized that the Easters are still were still married. And he goes, how uncomfortable is it at the dinner table? Jill, can you pass me the mashed potatoes, please? Yeah, okay. Don't frame me while you're passing the mashed potatoes, please, though. <laughs> like, I love it. Don't frame There's me a whole bunch of these technical potatoes. Stuff, right? <laughs> There's a whole bunch of technical stuff with, like, the phone records and stuff like that. And, like, the pings. It's so, like, it's needlessly technical. Like, we don't need to go over that. Basically, they managed to prove that not only had, at some point, Jill Easter's iPhone had been at home on the night in question, but at least part of the night, it had also been near Peter's apartment from sometime intermittently between midnight and 8 a.m. So the prosecution then argues that they were acting together while a babysitter is watching their kids. So, like, one plants the drugs and the other is acting as a lookout. So even if they'd swap phones, the records still put him at the scene. Yeah. And because he'd already finished closing, the defense attorney can't try to convince the jurors that that's not relevant or that the science is wrong. Sorry, they paid someone so they could go plant drugs in a woman's car. I mean, that's one theory. If they did, that's so freaking dumb. I mean, it's so Southern California. Like, I mean, we can't say anything. We've never know. been there. No, but from everything I've heard, the defense attorney tried to say that he'd been sandbagged and that they had introduced evidence improperly and all of this. And prosecution comes back and says, "You've we've had these records for years and so have you. <laughs> so, so the judge is like, there's no reason you can't save a good argument for the end. Like, it's a strategic decision. I love this. These for judges this are just like, done with the defense's lawyers. Well, because... Like, you're full of bullshit. If you think about it, even a judge is an attorney. Yeah. So they're all attorneys. They all know the... The law. Sort of social status that comes along with that. And they know how well these people knew and exploited their knowledge of the yeah. law. So this time, the jury takes two hours to come back guilty as Fuck charged. Yeah. Right. So the judge orders Kent to be taken into custody. Done, done. But he hadn't expected this. There were no arrangements made for his three kids, for his bills, any of that. So the judge gives him a day to get his affairs in order out of concern. And we're quoting again, out of concern for nothing but your children. When he tells his wife the news, Easter later says in court papers, because they do end up getting divorced and it's a messy divorce. I mean, what else did you expect Um, but a messy divorce? Right. She pretty much takes them for everything that he once had. It's a whole thing. But basically, he says in the court papers for the divorce that she told him he should kill himself so she could collect on the $500,000 life insurance policy. And when he said that he wouldn't, she suggested that they escape to Belize with the kids or she should kill herself. Like, this whole thing. Bitch, be crazy! So he says he stayed up that whole night comforting her as he closed down his practice. And then the next morning, he he found the search term, How to Kill Yourself, on her iPad. He could have gotten up to three years in state prison. But the judge made no secret of his contempt for Easter, but noted that the prisons were full, saying, In a perfect world, I would send you to prison largely as a statement of disgust for what you and your wife did. Instead, he sentenced him to 180 days in county jail, of which he would serve half, plus 100 hours of community service and three years probation. Why don't they give people, like, more community service then? Like, think about it. Give him 200 hours of community service. Then at least he's doing service for being a garbage person. Yeah. yeah. Well, so he does his time without the luxury of anonymity. So I guess I was wrong about Ooh, the, the needs. Bottom bitch status. But so it was, 
It says, inmates recognized him from TV and some thought he ought to be taken down. One day, he said the two of them knocked him down and bloodied his nose. He cleaned floors and toilets and read Game of Thrones paperbacks. I mean, you have enough time to actually read them in prison. Think about it. Those books are really fucking thick and really dense. And you could probably actually make a lovely chart about how everyone's related to everyone and you could get the names right. (laughs) Right. So basically, um, just before his second trial, he'd filed for divorce. In the divorce paper, she writes about him being unstable and irrational and paints him as this angry workaholic and heavy drinker and he's super prone to mood swings and he like locks himself in the bathroom to isolate himself from his family and that he blamed his drinking on the difficult relationship with his Catholic parents who'd rejected her because she wasn't Catholic and that he threatened to take the kids if she didn't plead guilty to the drug planting thing and yeah. That seems like a bunch of bullshit. It seems like what she thinks the judge would want to hear in order to grant her the most the most beneficial outcome of the divorce to yeah. her. You know what Can I mean? Can I get a bullshit button, please? Anytime you do true crime. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it on All my, your cases. I'll put it on my list. He writes to her from jail, according to the court filings, and says, um, I'm trapped in an endless cycle of lashing out at you, even after using you as a human shield. I'm sick. So that's what her court filings say that he wrote to her. But in his court papers, he says she won't let him talk to the kids, won't give him updates on the cat, won't give him the um, sleep apnea machine he needs. That's just cold. At one point, she pepper sprayed his face. Yeah, that's not funny. When she was that he wanted a DNA test to prove that his daughter was actually his. Oh! So eventually um, they agree to joint custody and he takes back the pepper spray thing. And then he writes, Moreover, Jill Easter has never been violent towards me or physically harmed me in any way. She was only ever loving and caring. I think it's somewhere in between. I don't think that either of them was as crazy or like as much of a caricature of themselves as the other claims that they were. But I don't think that these are good people either. I can definitely see both of them. Well, I can see her being violent towards him. But I think it's like he would probably be verbally abusive. She would probably seem more physically abusive and more psychologically abusive. I think they could both definitely be verbally abusive. Yeah. 100%. The pepper spray thing I don't think ever actually happened. I just think it's mean. A man needs a sleep apnea machine. He's already having a rough life. Don't keep it from right? him. Like, that's that's real petty. She's super but, petty. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the story of the Easter's garbage people. And that's the end of our 10th episode. We made it. Yay. We made it. Thank you for putting up with us not being, not posting last week for Thanksgiving. We both had a ridiculous amount of work to do. Because for me, mm-hmm. Thanksgiving's at my house, which meant I had to clean. Thank you for listening to the Cult of Domesticity. We are available on iTunes, Google Play, Chorus, Podbean. Um, I don't think we're available on SoundCloud anymore. But if we are not on your preferred app, let us know via email or social media. And we will work our hardest to get on that. Remember, if you really like us, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. It really is the best way to spread the word, um, share with your friends, all of that jazz. Uh, check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Domestic Podcasts to get the episode tip off, recipe of the week, and additional information about the week's topics. If you'd like to suggest a recipe or a topic, you can email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com. And before we go, I just want to give another shout out to the author of that article. His name is Christopher Goffard, and it was the LA Times and... Long distance high five. Absolutely long distance high five.